always awesome to welcome new members into our family. All right, let's give it up for Gilbert again. This is the real one. False alarm. Yeah, it's, uh, man, I get to close out the warehouse. I don't know how that happened, but uh, hold on. It's going to be a zinger today. We're trying to go out with a bang. Um, I don't know if you guys ever partake in, like, what I like to call, like, the pre-worship service, which is, like, when the worship band is practicing, but, like, you're still feeling it, and you're like, yeah, like, we're ready to, you got to get here, like, around, like, 1030 for that, but, uh, but, yeah, like, I was just over there in the corner, and the worship band was practicing this morning, I'm just kind of, like, looking around the warehouse, and just reflecting on, like, God's goodness to us in this place, like, I know many of you uh, were part of Zion for what feels like 10 years ago now, but I think it was only <laughs> three or something like that, but when we, we, we lost the building that we were meeting in, and then COVID happened, and we were just, like, riding the craziest roller coaster uh, that I had ever been on church-wise, and um, and I just remember that first meeting uh, when we lost the building, and we gathered at Blend, and we were just sitting in a circle and just praying and having no idea what was in front of us, and from that moment on, just seeing the Lord provide for everything we needed right when we needed it, uh, and, and just walking in that to the, together has been a really special experience, and this warehouse has been such an instrument in God's provision in that way. And, and I know that we're moving from this place and that there's still a lot of unknown ahead of us. But I was just reflecting that like, it's in the moments that you don't know where you're going or what it's gonna look like that you actually get to experience Jesus as the good shepherd. Um, you know, whenever you know where you're going and you know what it looks like, the person you're traveling with is just a companion. But whenever they know where you're going and you don't, that's when they're a shepherd. And I feel like we're going to get to continue to experience the Lord Jesus as our shepherd in the season ahead. And that's not even a sermon. I'm already preaching. Um, but we're just going <laughs> to we're just gonna camp out there. Uh, but no, we are in Mark 11. We are not in Psalm 23. We are in Mark 11, uh, verse 15. And uh, Tiffany and John lied to you because my verse, no, I'm kidding. My verse is actually not the most misquoted verse that you will ever see. Uh, my verse, you're not going to find it in Hobby Lobby. <laughs> if you are, it's a weird Hobby Lobby. Don't go back. Um, you're more likely to see my verse on Twitter timelines, YouTube comments, and all the other crazy corners of the internet and public discourse uh, that we all hang out in or at least see or are affected by. And so my verse is not the most misquoted verse, but I, I think it's a newly not newly misquoted, but it's been a newly, like, reappropriated verse in situations and places where uh, it's taken uh, entirely out of context. And so this sermon is going to be a bit, bit different than the ones that we've looked at before. Um, there are going to be times, I'm just going just gonna to warn you guys, there's times it's going to feel political in nature, but it's not because there's a specific political agenda or idea that I'm, I'm arguing for, but it's just because this verse uh, on both sides of, of political party lines has been misquoted most in recent history in like political arenas. So when you hear me referencing political things, no, I'm not making judgment on political ideologies. That's not my place, that's not this sermon. Um, but you're gonna hear it in that context because that's where this verse is being misquoted with the most, all right? Uh, so now that everybody is really, really nervous, let's, uh, <laughs> let's read the scripture, okay? We're in Mark 11, uh, verse 15. And it says this, and they came to Jerusalem, and he, meaning Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is the word of God, church. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you. We thank you for an opportunity to hear from your word. Father, we pray that you would come and that you would speak to us. Father, we pray that you would correct us and that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, this is your word. Father, I pray that your church would just be sensitive to hear it and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, today we are talking about Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple. And before we get into it, I kind of just want to put into perspective of like why this verse hasn't been able to get out of my head whenever we were put forward this topic uh, to preach on, like choose a misquoted verse. Like it was this one and one other that was like straight to my head. The one other got taken by Johnny and then this one wouldn't go away. And so I'm like, this is the one that we're going to preach at. And the reason uh, this hasn't gotten out of my head and it's, it's been in my head for like over a year now of just seeing this misquoted, uh, many of us... Uh, remember January 6th of 2021. It was like one of the craziest days in recent American history. Um, that was a day that there was a protest that turned into a riot that ended with people storming the U.S. Capitol building, right? And I remember I was on a meeting and uh, it was with a, a Christian organization and, and the boss came in and he realized what was going on. And he told us like, hey, there's something weird going on at the Capitol right now. Uh, let's just pray. And so we started that meeting with prayer and then we ended it, and then I didn't pay attention to the rest of the meeting because I pulled up a separate screen uh, with a live YouTube feed, and I was just watching, like, this craziness unfold. And then, like many of you, over the weeks that followed, I just began to see more and more videos coming in of showing us, like, in detail what had happened at the Capitol building that day. We saw people, you know, ramming barricades and tearing them down and gouging at the eyes of police officers and hitting people with fire extinguishers and getting tear gassed and, and fighting and yelling and cursing and breaking into the Congress chamber with zip ties so that they could uh, apprehend people. And it was just this crazy thing. And then one video particularly uh, disturbed me the most. And it showed this, this group of men that had come into the, into the, the floor of the Senate um, and then they stopped for a moment and they prayed. Uh, they knelt and they prayed and they thanked God for giving them the power to commit the violent acts that they had just done. And I was, I was so floored and I was, I was so confused and, and I began to see different Christians weigh in on this video that they had seen. And most of them, like I would wager, like most of us in this room were, were equally disturbed and they're like, I don't, I don't think this is the way of Jesus. But I noticed every now and then you would see a handful of Christians that would say something like, well, even Jesus flipped the tables in the temple. And so I realized what they, had, what they were concluding was that because there was a singular episode in Scripture where Jesus actively and aggressively um, and physically uh, flipped some tables, that they were also seeing themselves as being Christ-like when they actively and aggressively and violently try to accomplish their political goals. And that really disturbed something in me. And, uh, and I began to think about this verse. And I realized, like, that's probably the most extreme appropriation most of us are going to see of that verse. And I do think that's not, like, a majority of Christians who honestly know and are pursuing the Lord. Most of us aren't going to interpret the verse that way. Um, but I began to think that there are many ways that we, we use this verse in our everyday life um, that are still a misinterpretation. Um, some of these might sound familiar. They might not. 
Um, but like, if you ever like walk into a conversation, you realize like, I'm just gonna have to tell someone how it is, aka I'm gonna have to tell them all the things that I don't like about them. But hey, even Jesus flipped the tables. Or maybe you go into a meeting at work and you know, like, you're about to have to shake some things up. Some things aren't getting done. People aren't doing their jobs. You're tired of working long nights. But hey, even Jesus, he flipped them tables. Or maybe, uh, you know, somebody online on your Twitter feed, they're just saying some things that are super crazy. They, they just don't know. They don't understand. So you're going to have to jump in. You're going to have to use some well-selected emojis to get your point across. Because you need to know that they know that they're wrong. You need to make sure they know that they're wrong. But hey, even Jesus, he flipped the tables. Maybe you're being a, a bit more angry towards your kids than uh, you would like or that you're used to, or you're being a bit short with your spouse or your family, or, or maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic this morning and you're trying to get to church and you're gonna say some things under your breath. But hey, even Jesus, he flipped the tables. And so don't get me wrong, I know there are times that we do need to be brutally honest with people. There are times you have to advocate for yourself and for your family. There might be times that you have to push things forward at work that require being blunt and honest. There are times that you're going to have to physically or maybe at least emotionally or mentally defend others. Um, and that's okay, there are times for those things and, good, and those are good things. Uh, but this verse is still not the justification for that. There, there's other verses in scripture that we can point to. And so I think that uh, when people point to this verse, it's, it's leaving room for some extreme appropriations uh, that I just want to kind of deconstruct a bit this morning. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at a few things this morning. The first is we're going to look at what exactly is, is happening in this verse. Uh, what does it mean? And then what doesn't it mean? And then what are some things that we could uh, take to, to apply this to our life? Like how does this look in everyday life for us? Um, and so you're going to hear me kind of speaking a lot against like this, this aggressive, uh, like some of the like aggressive tendencies that people can use this verse but I do wanna argue, and this could be a whole other sermon, um, but I do wanna preface that this is also not a verse that's just like uh, solely affirming pacifism. Uh, it's definitely not affirming passivity, like that Christians should do nothing. Um, but I do wanna point out that without, like throughout Christian history, you're gonna find um, just a wide variety of both like interpretations and convictions for how Christians believe God had called them to walk out their faith in the midst of politics, in the midst of culture, in the midst of government. Okay, you got everybody from, uh, Martin Luther King, who was like a known pa uh, pacifist, right, and, and brought about change with uh, uh, nonviolent protests. But then you got people like Frederick Douglass and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who were um, very, very devout, very convicted Christians, but both of them actually took stances that uh, saw violence and aggression as necessary in certain times. So I'm not taking either side. I just want to say it's complex, but I am going to say, what does this verse mean, and how should we use it, and how should we not use it? All right? Okay, everybody feeling good? We're going to keep going. So what is going on in this verse? Um, so many of you probably read this verse. Um, it actually shows up in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels. So that just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So these are three gospels, um, and this, this story shows up in, in all three of them, and it shows up in the gospel of John as well, though it looks a little bit different. Um, so this is something that we're like, we're very, very sure Jesus did this, this happened. Um, it happened at the end of Jesus's ministry, towards the end. And so you remember when we left off in Luke, uh, where was Jesus headed? He was heading towards Jerusalem, right? So this happens right after Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And so far at this point, he's done two things. He has had his triumphal entry, right? When he came in on the back of a donkey, telling everybody like basically, I'm the king of Israel. And then he's also cursed a fig tree, which is also a really weird story. And it's really important to our story today. So I just want you to keep that at the back of your mind. So after he's had his triumphal entry, he's cursed the fig tree. He goes to the temple. 
All right, so the temple was the focal point of Jewish worship at the time. If there was going to be a big holiday, um, all the Jewish people were going to go to the temple because they were going to worship together. All right, whenever it was uh, the Sabbath on Saturday, they would go to the temple. The temple was where people went to meet with God. Um, but it, the temple wasn't really like, you know, like our church where there's at most two entrances and we all come into the same place. Uh, the temple operated a bit differently back in that day. Uh, it actually had four different sections with four different gates. And uh, who you were and where you were at in life and in culture kind of dictated which gate you went to. Uh, and they think that when Jesus entered the temple on this day, he likely went through a gate that was called the gate of the Gentiles. Uh, so this was the gate that anybody who wasn't born ethnically a Jew, uh, but had maybe converted to Judaism down the road or at least a God-fearing person uh, that wanted to come and know more about Yahweh, they would go through this temple. And that's really, really important to know because... Uh, even though Judaism is a Jewish religion, from the very beginning, from the moment that God uh, appeared to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to make you the father of nations, he, was, he never said, I'm going to make you the father of the Jews. He said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And so from the very beginning, from the moment God made his promise with Abraham, there was always, always a global component. Uh, the worship of Yahweh was never supposed to stop with just the Jewish people. And all of us here who I assume most of us don't have a Jewish background, can say yes and amen that we're the product of that. And so when people came to the court of the Gentiles, it was people from outside of the nation of Israel, and they were coming to know and experience and worship Yahweh. But the question is, whenever they went through this gate of the Gentiles, what did they find? Uh, well, we know what Jesus found. He found a rough and rowdy market. Uh, could you imagine, come, I mean, we kind of experienced it, right? Like the first day you guys came in that downstairs door and all of a sudden there was like this new store over here in this corner. You're like, church has changed. We got a new ministry that I knew nothing about. Um, it, it's kind of something similar going, going there. It had turned into like a, a crazy market. I don't know if many of you have ever been to a Middle Eastern market. Um, I have, and it can be absolute chaos. It's like going to Costco on the weekend, but even the shelves are yelling at you. Um, <laughs> It just turns into a full contact sport. And that's what's going on in the temple of God. And I mean, could you imagine coming to worship and you find a mosh pit? Like I know at Zion, we like our worship. We like it active, we like it loud, um, but this is a whole different level and uh, it's problematic. But the real problem isn't just that the, the, the temple is loud and chaotic. The real problem is that it's exploitative people are getting taken advantage of in the house of God. And how do we know this? Let's look at verse 15 real quick. If you look at the end, you're gonna see that there are two people that Jesus goes after when he starts clearing the temple. It says, he entered the temple and began to drive out who? Those who sold uh, and those who bought, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So there's two people that Jesus, that scripture says Jesus specifically targeted, to use a bad word, money changers, and those who sold pigeons. So what was the problem with money changers? So remember, this is the gate of the Gentiles. So the people who are showing up here, they're not from Israel, they're not Hebrews, they're not Israelites. Uh, they're coming from Rome, from Greece, from Egypt, from, from all over the place, all right? And when they've come to the temple, they need to buy the things that they need in order to sacrifice and worship God. Um, many of them need to buy animals that they can sacrifice. It's hard to bring an animal with you on a long trip. And so they need money to do that. But they can't just use any money. They have to use the local currency. They have to use uh, Israelite money. And so they go to the, t uh, to the temple, and the first thing they have to do is I got to exchange my Roman currency for an Israelite currency so that I can buy an animal to sacrifice. 
But the problem is it's operating like there. If any of you have ever traveled internationally, you land in the airport and you suddenly realize, like, I don't have a single peso to my name. Like, where am I going to get these? You're going to go to that little counter in the corner of the airport, and you're going to give them, like, I don't know, $100, and, like, 20 of it is about to go straight to their pockets, and then you get, like, $80 of actual exchanged currency. And that's exactly what's going on, right? You're in a vulnerable situation. You need to make the exchange. They'll make it for you, but they're going to get a cut. Um, and... God sees this and it's, it's grieving the heart of God. Another illustration, a way to think about this is like, imagine you and your family, you go on vacation, right? And you guys are gonna take a trip up to, to Maryland, Connecticut, um, somewhere in the North, maybe just some Maine. You're going to Maine, right? I don't know what people do in Maine, but you're going there. And, but you're, you're a good Christian family, right? So you're gonna go to church on vacation uh, and you're going into the church and at the door is their version of Elder John. And Elder John from Maine is, is sitting there and he said, hey, you guys are so welcome in our church. We're so glad you came here to worship with us. But I noticed you had a New York State license plate. And so what I'm going to need you to do is on your way in, I need you to put an extra $20 in the offering plate. And then after that, you are welcome to worship with us. Now, I know we're a church from Brooklyn, so that's not going to fly well for, for anybody, especially them. Uh, but just imagine how that would make you feel. Like if you got this devote, devoted passion for the Lord, uh, but somebody is exploiting it in order to pad their pockets. And that's what's going on in the temple of God when Jesus walks in. The other group that he goes for, he went for the money changers, but he also went for those who were selling pigeons. Now I know like if we're not aware of it, like we just assume there were lots of animals in the temple and but for some reason pigeons got caught in the crossfire and, and that's why Mark included it in here. And, and no, Mark actually mentions this for a reason. It's very uh, deliberate. If you go back to the book of Leviticus and you're looking at the sacrificial laws, uh, when people were coming to make sacrifices for sin, uh, God commanded that they sacrifice either a sheep or a goat, unless the person who was doing the sacrifice was poor, and then they could sacrifice a pigeon. And pigeons were easier to come by, they were cheaper to buy, there wasn't a lot of hassle to get, there were plenty of them, just like in New York. And, and so you don't even have to go buy one, you just put down some, some old bagel in a net and then you got yourself your sacrifice. Like, right, it's the same, the same idea. Um, but the problem is that people are selling these birds in the temple, which means they are literally and systematically trying to make a profit off of people who already don't have enough money for what they need in the first place, right? These people already don't know where their next meal is coming from. They already can't take care of their medical needs. Um, but when they go to the temple, somebody's gonna make a buck because they need to buy the cheapest animal possible. Um, and this is just completely and unjust. And so this grieves the heart of Jesus. And so both the foreigner and the poor, and these are both people, by the way, uh, that were supposed to have a place in the kingdom of God, right? Like the Old Testament is really specific about caring for the poor and for people of all nations. Jesus into his ministry at this point has been making a case that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor. The kingdom of God belongs to the Gentile. But he goes into the temple and he finds out that both the, the poor and the foreigner are those who are being oppressed uh, they're supposed to have a place in the kingdom of God, but it's the very people of God that are actually oppressing them. And they can't worship without being exploited. And so what does Jesus do? He cleans house. I don't know if you guys ever, sometimes my mom would come home and the house would be dirty and she would clean house. Um, and just like, it was like a tornado, right? Um, and usually like we got pulled into the tornado and got made to help clean as well. But anyways, Jesus just starts to clean house. He actively, aggressively, and physically goes in to change the situation. Um, and this is for the glory of God. He does this for the good of the poor and he does this for the expansion of the kingdom. And I think 
when we first see this, when we first have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus was like actively flipping and probably throwing things, the book of John says he actually took time to make a whip and was just like, you know, getting people some, in the South we say, get them some giddy up going. Like they are, they are getting out of the temple. Um, and at first that can make us really uncomfortable to see this side of Jesus, but but ladies and gentlemen, this is our savior. Like we call him the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings for a reason. And if this makes you uncomfortable, wait till you see him in the book of Revelation. He has a sword strapped to his thigh. And, um, and the thing is like he gets his hands dirty when it comes to the kingdom of God. And this is something that we should actually glory in that when Jesus took on flesh and he came to earth, he went straight to the heart of the most blasphemous parts of our existence and he changed them and he cleaned them up. Yes, Jesus was meek and he was mild and he was humble, but his work was hard. The work of the kingdom is hard and it required him using bravery and courage and getting his hands dirty. And when we see that, it's okay to feel a bit uncomfortable because it goes against like the blonde hair, blue eyes Jesus that uh, the people like made us accustomed to uh, but when we see that, just say, amen, my Savior got his hands dirty. He's got his hands dirty there, and he got his hands dirty when it came to my life and forgiving my sin. And this is something that we say yes and amen to. <clears throat> and he had something to say about it. In verse 17, he says this. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so after he clears out the temple, uh, it says he wouldn't even let people carry things through it anymore. Uh, he begins to teach, and he'll actually spend a lot of the last week of his life in the very temple that he had just helped clean out. And I love when you look at the, the, the book of Matthew when they tell the story, because it kind of drives this point home that Jesus was actually doing this to take care of the poor. Uh, because in the book of Matthew, after he cleans it out, it says this. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Like, what a picture. The kingdom of God is finally being extended to the people who needed it the most. But first, it required Jesus going in and reorienting everything. And so do you see, like, do you see this? Do you see how this verse is about so much more uh, than just an excuse to, to be mean to those that we disagree with? That Jesus is doing so much more than like giving his enemies a hard time. In fact, these aren't even his enemies. I'm gonna talk about that more in a moment. Um, but there is so much more that Jesus is doing here. And when we use this verse as an excuse to be mean or nasty or just argue with somebody online that we disagree with, we are misappropriating this passage so terribly. Because um, what happens is we end up focusing on what Jesus did, like physically, and we forget why he did it in the context that he did it. And we miss the point entirely. So what is the point? What does this verse mean? Some of it I've already hit on, but I'm just gonna go through it uh, real quick. First, it shows us that our God is actively passionate about the deliverance of the poor and the expansion of the kingdom of God to all nations. Um, Israel was not being faithful to the poor in the temple. They weren't being faithful to the Gentiles. And so Jesus had to clean house. And that's good news. But at the same time, um, the hard part about this verse is we have to turn around and ask ourselves the same question. If Jesus were to come into our church and come into our homes, would he find us about the very things that he was passionate about? Um, or would he have to clean the house of our hearts as well. Uh, the other thing is this verse is not about an outward retaliation. It's not about an outward judgment of, of Jesus on the inside looking out and telling people what to do. It was about an inward judgment. It was about an inward cleansing. Um, so see, people often use this verse um, to, to uh, 
to affirm some sort of action they're about to take on somebody that's outside of their tribe. Like there's somebody of a political party that I don't agree with, all right, and I need to set them straight, so I'm gonna go flip some tables, right? Or there's somebody who, uh, you know, has just been bugging me at work, or I don't agree with what they're doing, and so I'm gonna go flip some tables, so I, from the outside, need to change these people on the inside. But at the end of the day, Jesus was a religious Jew, and he went and flipped the tables of a religious Jewish establishment. He did this action to his own tribe. He wasn't using it to go. You didn't see him going into King Herod's palace. You didn't see him going into Pontius Pilate's palace to do these things. No, he went to his own people, and that's where he flipped the tables. So if we are using this verse to appropriate action against an outside tribe, people who don't agree with us, people who aren't from our group, we're likely misusing this verse. And you might say, I disagree with you, David. And I would say, great, but I've anticipated this. So I want us to look back at the scripture because I had time to warm up and you didn't. Um, but if you, if you look at Mark chapter 11, where we see this very clearly that Jesus is doing this um, not as an outward retaliation, but towards his own people, um, this verse or this passage, uh, verses 15 through 19, are sandwiched between one long story of Jesus cursing this fig tree. Right, I told you we were gonna come back to this. Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, he sees a, sees a fig tree um, and scripture says it is not the time for figs. There's no reason for him to expect getting figs from this fig tree, all right? But still he goes up because he's the Lord of the universe. He does what he wants. He goes up to a fig tree and he looks for figs and he doesn't find any. And so Jesus curses the tree and he says, may you never bear fruit again. And he goes on his way. He goes and clears the temple and then he comes back and the disciples see the fig tree and they say, Lord, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered, it's dead. And uh, the question is why? Well, whenever you, you read the passage and also you, you look at commentaries, this fig tree was actually a metaphor for the people of Israel, for his own people, all right? And the scripture says that we're supposed to bear fruit when? In season and out of season. And so for Jesus, it didn't matter whether it was in season or out of season, whether the people of Israel were expecting him or not expecting him, God had commanded that his people bear fruit. And he went to his people and to their temple and they weren't bearing fruit. In fact, they were doing the opposite. They had turned poisonous, all right? And so what did he have to do? He had to clean house. And so, uh, again, this is not about an outward retaliation towards people who disagreed with Jesus. It was about him cleansing his own people. Um, now, again, are there times, like I think Christians, we should be the first to take stock, the first to flip our own tables, the first to, to clean house. Are there times when Christians are called to outward action? Absolutely, I'm not arguing against that. Some of us need more of that, all right? But again, I'm saying that this verse is not giving us the way to do that. There are other verses, and I'm gonna mention them, I promise. Um, and the last thing that we need to know about what this verse means, it means that a good, a good king cleanses the temple. A good king cleanses the temple. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is full of kings, and it says almost all of them did this, the, the same thing. They did what was right in their own eyes, and they rejected the Lord their God. But every now and then, you would see a king popped up, pop up in the Old Testament that was a good king. I think about like King Josiah. And almost all these kings, what do you see them do? They go and they like resurrect the temple. They go into the temple and they clean it out and they start to read the word of God again. And this is what Jesus is doing. And not only that, he's fulfilling a prophecy that was already uh, spoken about the Messiah. And I'm used to like hearing the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah and like, you know, kind of having these uh, set my framework for what to expect from Jesus. But there's this prophecy in the book of Malachi that I had never really read until I was studying for this sermon. And it blew my mind because it, it describes what Jesus does in the temple so well. So this is in Malachi uh, chapter three, verses one through the, three. And it says this, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant 
whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But then he says this, but who can endure his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites who were like the priests. So in other words saying he will purify the temple and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. So when Jesus comes and he clears the temple, he's saying, I'm him. I'm the messianic king. I'm the one that you were expecting to come and clean house and set the Lord's temple back straight. And so he's saying, I'm the one, I'm his king. And so that's this verse in context. That's what this verse means. Uh, but at the end of the day, all of us, none of us are about to go to a temple and need it to be in order. So what does this mean for us, 21st century, living in Brooklyn? Um, I have a few things. It's like a ton, I could say. I feel like I kind of regretted choosing this verse because I quickly realized like a whole book could be written on this stuff. Um, but I've got four quick points I just want us to think about when it comes to our own life. Um, the first is this, that we should be ready to have our own house cleaned or cleansed before we try to cleanse others. And so like I said, while it can be tempting to use this verse as a justification to attack, to judge, and to condemn others, it's actually more about taking stock for ourselves and say, if the Lord were to visit our temple today, would he have to flip some tables and could we do it before he gets here? And so I think the best way to take stock of this and um, is I had to give myself this reflection too whenever I was preparing this. I began to think like, am I as outraged by my own sin as I am the actions of those that I already disagree with? Am I as outraged by the own ways that I fail and blaspheme God as I am of the others who don't know him are also blaspheming God? And I mean, I'm just like the rest of you guys. I got algorithms that are pumping stuff into my feed that I wasn't expecting to see and then I see it and suddenly I'm, I'm angry for reasons I don't even know. And I began to wonder like, when was the last time I was that angry, that disgusted, that, wanting, that much wanting to retaliate against my own sin versus uh, this person that I don't even know um, that talks too much on the internet, right? Like it's, it's not about these people right or wrong. It's, it's just like, am I as angry at my own sin as I am at them? And I mean, there's another cherry-picked verse that talks about, right? Like when Jesus says, take out the speck of your own eye before you uh, judge somebody else's. It's not that there's not times to make uh, judgments of culture and to try to figure out where does the church stand on these things and how do we walk in a culture that is uh, more and more, um, you know, blaspheming the things of God. There are times to have those conversations and to take those actions, but let's make sure we're examining our own hearts before we jump into it. Um, the second is this, that scripture is explicit about how we are to deal with those that we disagree with. Disagree with. Uh, the scripture is very clear of how we do that. And again, this verse is not it. This wasn't the verse that Jesus was like, okay, now I'm gonna show you how to deal with people you disagree with. No, he had already did that. It was in, uh, it's in uh, Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Um, when he says, blessed are the meek, you know, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the ability to throw a table out a window. No, it doesn't say that. It says everything I said before that. Um, and so scripture's clear. Scripture's clear of how we are to deal with those who disagree. Um, and this verse is not it. And so, yeah, my, my heart is that our responses in a world that is increasingly becoming more polarized, increasingly becoming more chaotic, and yeah, increasingly starting to despise the things of God more and more every day. That's a reality. I'm not pretending like it's not. But my prayer for us as a church, because uh, I know it's a confusing time to try to navigate these things, that we would be fueled first and foremost by a commitment to Jesus, a commitment to his way, a commitment to his teaching, 
okay, a commitment to the fruit of the Spirit, a commitment to the Beatitudes, and allow that to fuel our response, even as we work for change in our culture and in our city and in our neighborhoods. I was trying to think of what's like a really good practical example of when I've seen somebody flip the table in a good way, all right? Um, I had this friend and he was, he was living in another place. He, he, had, he had intentionally moved into a poor neighborhood because that's where he wanted to minister. Uh, and he needed to get internet set up at his house. And so he, he made the proper calls and they kept saying, okay, we're gonna come set up your internet. And he waited a couple of days, nobody came. So he called again. They said, yeah, 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 we're coming. We're coming next week. Next week came, uh, nobody showed up. He called again, yeah, 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 we're gonna come in two days. He waited two days, nobody showed up. And he kept waiting and waiting and nobody would come fix his internet. It didn't matter how many times he called. And so he started to talk to his neighbors and they all began to say, yeah, we have the same problems. Nobody ever comes and sets up these services for us. So we've actually had to start bootlegging things ourselves. So there's wires like going over the street where people are just hooked into weird things, trying to get internet and, and basic services. So finally he went uh, to the office of the people who are responsible for going to set up the internet. And he says, you guys haven't come and set up the internet. And they said, yeah, 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 we're gonna come tomorrow. And he said, stop telling me that you're gonna come tomorrow. You're lying to my face. This isn't about whether or not you're busy. This is about you oppressing the poor. He's like, you don't care about this neighborhood. You don't care about these people because it's poor and you're too busy serving the, the rich and wealthy. And he said, you should be ashamed before God. And the next day they came and set up the internet for everybody, right? Like, <clears throat> so, so for me, like that was an example of, of what it meant to go in and flip a table in a good way. It's not, it's not like setting up straw men. It's not calling somebody a misogynist just because they believe in life. It's not calling somebody uh, using woke as a slur just because they care about the poor, all right? It's about actually being convicted of the things of the kingdom of God and going and getting them done. That's what it means to flip tables. And so church, I mean, I'm right here trying to learn these things with you. Like I said, it's a hard time to figure out how to walk these things out in such a, uh, such a confusing culture and society. Um, but yeah, my prayer for us is that we would, we would look to Jesus. And so, uh, Baron, you, you guys can go ahead and, and come up. I'm gonna pray. And yeah, my prayer is just gonna ask that the Lord would, would give us strength, uh, that we would be known as people of salt and light, that we would be the peacemakers, but that we would also be very courageous when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God. I think if there's one thing I could say, it's what I said at the beginning, and I just wanna reiterate it. Like the work of the kingdom requires so much courage it requires so much sacrifice. It requires so much passion, all right? If anybody ever tells you that following Jesus is just being meek and mild and passive, they lie to you, that's Santa Claus, all right? But our Jesus, he calls us just like himself to get our hands dirty. But the way that we do that looks entirely different than the way the world does it. And so let's tune into him as we seek to live into it. Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, thank you so much for this word. Lord, I know you, you, were, you were preaching to me more than I was preaching to anybody else, Father. And, and Lord, I wanna be the first to just say I'm weak in this, Lord. I get angry, Lord. I get frustrated. The world doesn't make sense. Our culture doesn't make sense. And Lord, we wanna see things set, set right, Lord, but so often we go about it the wrong way. And uh, Lord, yes, yes, we say yes today, man, because that's what it feels like sometimes. And, and Lord, we just pray that you would give us strength, Lord. Lord, that you would show us what it means to be people of the cross, uh, that it would be people of Jesus, Lord. Help us to walk out your way, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you would convict each of us, uh, Lord, the ways that we've done this poorly in the past, would, even now as we worship, would you remind us? And God, we'll repent. And Lord, would you give us the passionate causes of your kingdom to pursue and show us the way that you've convicted us to do it, Father. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be so preoccupied with tearing down other people's arguments that we forget to build your kingdom. 
So Father, we just ask for your help, especially as Zion, Lord, as we move into a new season, into a new location, that these would be the things that we want to be known by. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.